Hello and welcome to Queenstown Property Chats. I'm Maria Rosa, your host and local licensed real estate agent. Every episode, I'll be bringing you fresh and current insights into the Queenstown property market so we can both stay informed by the best local experts. everyone and welcome to another episode of Queenstown Property Chats. Today I'm excited to share a conversation that I had with Richard Kemp on residential visitor accommodation consent or also known as VA consent. Now Richard is the owner of Pragmatic Planning here in Queenstown and he's a seasoned town planner with a wealth of insights to offer. But before I get into that conversation with him, I wanted to talk to you about a newsletter that I have. It comes out weekly and it's a way that you can stay informed about local developments, district plan updates, market movements and record prices that are happening in the Queenstown property market. It's really key in staying ahead of the dynamic you know, world of real estate. So I'll leave a link in the notes section of the podcast. And for anyone that signs up before St. Patrick's Day, which is March the 17th, they will go into a draw to win a $120 voucher for any restaurant or bar of your choice. So it doesn't matter where you're located, whether that's in Australia, New Zealand, or even in Europe, I will get you a voucher for whatever bar or restaurant that you would like to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. So let's get into this podcast and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Richard. Hi, Maria. Thank you for coming on to Queenstown Property Chats. Um, So before we start talking about um, residential visitor accommodation consent, could you give us a brief overview of your experience as a town planner and a bit about your company? No problem. Thanks so much for having me on this. I'm really excited. So my name is Richard Kemp. I am a town planning consultant. I, a bit of brief background about me, I studied town planning at University of Auckland. Um, My graduate job was working for the Queen's, essentially the Queenstown Lakes District Council back in 2012 in Wanaka. And so I did a couple of years in Wanaka, a couple of years in Queenstown working for the same council. And then I went out and started my own consultancy around the start of 2016. And so, so I'm locally based. I tend to deal mostly with uh, preparing resource consent applications for different clients for different developments. So that could be subdivision, it could be new buildings, and of course, visitor accommodation, which seems to be the continual topic of the month. And I'm looking forward to getting into more details today. So what exactly is visitor accommodation consent or VA consent, as some people might have known as, and who would need to obtain it? Sure. So visitor accommodation, we're just going to refer to it as VA from now on because it's such a continual mouthful, (laughs) is essentially the short-term letting of a residential dwelling. I mean, often known as Airbnbs, just in regular slang language. So that is regulated here in the Queenstown Lakes District. Um, that's including like like Wanaka, like Harwear, all those kind of areas, all the way down to Kingston and to Glenorchy. Okay. So what the question is, what is short-term accommodation? It's when you have someone stay in your house for a period of less than three consecutive months. Okay. So if you were to rent out your property to long-term tenants for more than three months, no problem. Standard residential letting, no kind of consenting obligations with council it's when you're talking more of that shorter term letting frequency particularly night to night like airbnbs and what type of um residential 
houses um, would need that VA consent? Is it if I've got a five-bedroom house and I occupy two of the bedrooms and I just had one bedroom I wanted to Airbnb, would I still need consent? So the case you're referring to is called a homestay. We, I often refer to it as more of a traditional bed and breakfast style where you would be living in a house and you're renting out a spare room or maybe like a granny flat outside the property, that kind of thing. Normally that doesn't need consent from council. You do normally need to, we normally need to register your property as what's called a homestay with council, but fundamentally you can avoid the need to get consent for that. But Um, if I had a four bedroom house and then I had a one budget unit attached to that house, that was completely self-contained, had its own kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, and I wanted to put that on Airbnb or any of the other websites, would that need VA consent? Generally, no, provided the number of guests, that's the number of short-term guests are less than five. Oh, okay. And what's really important is that someone's living on the property full-time. And it's interesting you sort of bring up that example of if you were living on the property and you had the self-contained unit, nowhere in the rules does it say that it has to be you as the property owner living on the property. So it's almost a bit of a backdoor into the rules in some cases where we could you could rent out the, the main house to tenants and then Airbnb the, the units, even though you're not living there. The key thing is that someone is living on the site permanently full-time. Could you just talk us through the process, sorry, of obtaining VA consent? Absolutely, yeah, sure. I suppose before I answer that, it's quite important to note that these rules have been continually evolving over a number of years now, but we've only just at the start of 2023 had a somewhat of a settlement of them. And there normally is provision where you can rent out your home, the full house for short term without consent up to a certain number of nights a year. Okay. For most areas, that's 90 nights a year. The main exe- exa- main exemptions to that that, I'm, that I'll bring up are Jack's Point and Hanley's Farm, where it's 42 nights a year. Right, okay. So in order to unlock that, we do need to register as a as a holiday home with council. But we, for the purpose of this conversation, we're just going to talk about what happens if you're wanting to do more than that. Yeah, yeah. And that is, unfortunately, it does. it is a bit of a site-specific query. Um, we've got two sort of – it either goes one or two ways. Either one, we really need to talk to the neighbours because the neighbours' approvals will be quite critical in securing that consent. Or alternatively, if you're in a zone, particularly the zones closest to the town centre, to the Queenstown town centre that is, and the Wanaka town centre to be fair as well, uh, we often do not need the approval of neighbours. Okay. And who is it that's asking for as part of the application process? Who is getting that approval? Is it me personally? I'm going to reach out to my neighbours on both sides and let them know and get their permission as part of the application, or does the council do that? So it is up to us as the applicant. So we're, for, for example, we're, when I'm engaged to assist someone with securing these consents, normally I help that property owner reach out to their neighbours and consult with them. We then take that into council. Because ultimately, when we get to count, when we get to council consent stage, they're going to make their own assessment and tell us who they think is affected, if anyone. And we ideally will have those approvals lined Already. up. Yeah. Okay. And what other sort of documentation or information is usually required for that application process? Yeah. So there's a, there's a list of a, quite a few things we need. I mean, the, the the resource consent processes, unfortunately, are quite bloated with a whole lot of technical information. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, if I was to summarise, I mean, the core documents we really need are uh, what's called an assessment of effects on the environment. That's when we're really constructing an argument in a report format that it's appropriate for someone to, to essentially run a little motel in a residential zone. And so there's a lot of, like, arguments we need to make if it's part of that, like traffic, noise, things like that. 
We also need to prepare a management plan for how the day-to-day of this thing's going to be run. Um, and there's, there's other supplementary documentation as, that we need as well. Um, so it is unfortunately not a process that is super straightforward. How long does it usually take? The biggest unknown to that is whether or not we need to consult with neighbours. Right, and okay. Yeah, so let, let, let's put that to a side for a sec because <laughs> yeah. that, that really changes things. But le- presuming that that's not a factor, about two to three weeks to prepare all the documentation. Yeah. And then once we send it into council, they're going to take at least a month to process it. It should be a month provided there's no issues, but sometimes they have different questions that they need answered. We have to deal with that. And just to confirm to anybody that listening, you are people are able to reach out to you and you could help them with this process as well. Correct, yeah. So oh it's it's a, it's a bit funny how I even fell into this really. But back in before 2017, 2018, these this wasn't really a thing, this sort of short-term accommodation market. And I was just, I ended up doing quite a few of these early and somehow my name got out there and I've sort of turned to the go-to in Queenstown. But I, yeah, someone can engage me and I will help them through this process. It's almost like, it's not a requirement. It's like, it's like almost like going to court, I suppose. You're not required to engage a lawyer, but someone like myself can help make that process a lot easier. And um, just going back, sorry, to that um, application process, are there any unique requirements or considerations specific to Queenstown um, that people should know about, or is it usually quite, it's just more about the individual property? It's mostly about the individual property. I suppose for the purpose of your question, the rules we're talking about are within the Queenstown Lakes District Plan, so that only applies to areas in our district. Okay. Different rules in Central Otago, different rules in Dunedin, different rules in Auckland, for example. Yeah. But if, in terms of Queenstown versus Wanaka, for example, the rules are pretty much the same. And are there any common mistakes that applicants make or should be conscious of avoiding? Common mistakes? I suppose that the main thing would be to sort of understand whether or not you did need to consult with neighbours up front. Um, I've definitely seen applications that have been lodged by, by mum and dads and they, they haven't secure the approval of the neighbours up front and then they've spent all this money applying for the consent and then when council asks for those approvals the neighbours aren't willing to get it and that's quite a big expense to have outlaid for yeah Yeah. for something they really should have done before. When you talk about actually two points there what would you say is a common objection normally from neighbours as to why they wouldn't want it Mm. that you've seen or is there a common objection? Yeah I would say that if I was to the two most common objections would be concerns about car parking and concerns about noise. I find it's interesting. I mean, I find about, if I was to put a number on it, I find 80% of people, neighbours don't have a problem with you short-terming provided you approach them the right way about it. Um, But then 20% of people, for for whatever reasons, will and won't otherwise change their mind, which is their choice. Um, But if there was those two concerns, it would be noise and car parking that really come up time and time again. And the other thing I wanted to go back to asking you was how much roughly could someone be looking like for this to cost them? It does very wildly. I mean, so to put some really high-level numbers on it, there's three kind of core aspects of the – well, four really. I'll, I'll just run through them more quickly. Call it core aspects of cost. There's consulting fees, like if, you were, if they were to engage someone like myself to help prepare the application. There's council fees for them to process the application. Um, those are the sort of upfront costs. And then once consent's granted, council's also going to charge you a one-time development contribution. And that's essentially because council believes that short-term accommodation is a business that supposedly generates a higher demand on council infrastructure, like water supply, that kind of thing. 
it's very debatable that that, but anyway, they will. So to those three costs, I generally tell people to budget about $10,000 for. Okay. In order to cover that. There's, there's obviously some variance in between, but as a broad stroke number, that's the kind of cost you need to be aware of. Once consent's granted, council is also going to increase your property's rates. And the amount that goes up depends on how many nights a year you have consented. So for a 180 night a year consent, you're looking at about 35% above your normal rates, all the way up to over about 80% higher for a year-round 365 consent. So, yeah. And once you get it, are you having to apply every year again to upkeep that? Or how does that work? No, so resource consents are pretty much always granted in perpetuity and they stay with the, the actual property that it's owned by the property not yourself essentially so if you were to go and sell the new owner can come in and use that consent and are there any ongoing monitoring or compliance that people have to sort of go through with the council once they've obtained that va consent yes so Normally in the kind of standard conditions that council puts on these consents, there's requirements that every year you are required to submit proof of your letting, like your records, to council to prove that you're complying with your number of nights a year you've got consented. You're also required to do a letter drop to the neighbours every year to update them on your contact details, the property manager's contact details. Those are the the ongoing requirements that pretty much every consent has. Every now and then there'll be a different specific requirement for a specific case depending on what it is and what are the options if um applicants have had their consent application denied Mm -hmm. is there a way to appeal that or should i just come and see you (laughs) yeah i mean it's quite rare it's very rare actually for a consent application to be flat out declined what what, what, like i'm there'll be less than five of them that's happened like for, for example, out of hundreds of consents that council's okay. granted. But what normally happens is council raises an issue like says, right, this neighbour's affected, can you please get their approval? And then you, the, the applicant goes and speaks to the neighbour, they're not willing to sign off, and the whole thing just sort of disappears and doesn't get granted. That's the normal kind of thing. If, it's a, if consent was formally declined, you do have the right of appeal to the Environment Court. Okay. And um, what are the potential consequences for people that operate short-term accommodation without VA consent? Yeah, so I'm presuming we're talking about those people who are well above the permitted allowance of 90 nights, for example, yeah. and they're just getting on I've with got, it. Yeah. It's my separate home that I have in Queenstown. I don't live in it. No one permanently lives in it, but I've just put it on Airbnb. Not forget, forget about the rules. Just yeah, do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah just forgot about sure. the rules. It's got it on there for totally. the last well, six months. <laughs> yeah, I mean, council is getting better at at cracking down on this, given the sort of pressure that they're under from the community about the housing crisis and, and short-term rentals. There is def- normally as a first step, they will give you a pretty strict warning and say apply for consent straight away. There can be fines and prosecutions that follow that. But no- normally once someone's instructed to apply for consent, they take that process pretty quickly. Okay, perfect. And what advice would you give to individuals who are thinking about applying for VA consent? Yeah, I think the first thing to do really is to get advice, specific advice on the property that you're looking at because there are there really are some properties that are just not suitable for short-term accommodation for various reasons. A good example I'll give is something if, if there's a property that is on, say, Frankston Road and the, the access situation is pretty dangerous for short-term accommodation, foreign drivers, let's, let's call it that, yeah, then... There's no real alternative to that. It's, it's going to be a difficult consent to get. So I really recommend if someone's looking at buying for that reason, get in touch with ideally a consultant like myself or, or another consultant. Um, you could also talk to the council. 
Generally, the advice to councils, duty planners on the front desk give us very generic and not it won't help you too much, but by all means, talk to them. It's, it's, but yeah, I would say the key thing is to get advice up front on what before you can you expect. That. And before we wrap up today, is there anything else that you want to say to our audience, Richard? Or do you think we've covered it all? Oh, we've, we've talked about it quite a bit. I mean, I think the key thing is also, one thing I would recommend actually, if someone is looking to buy, particularly to build a property, and they wanted the option of a short-term accommodation in future is to consider seriously consider building a residential flat on the property. Every man and his dog who's building in Hanley's farm tends to be doing that. And by residential flat, I mean the other common name is home and income. Yeah. So that's when you have your main house and a little, a little you know, granny flat. Yeah, a little granny flat. flat. Go, go through the go get that all legally built and consented. The, the cost is not in terms of making sure it's all legal. Drop in the bucket in the scheme of things, but that really does give you options in terms of. If a neighbour is not willing to sign off, for example, you could look at this homestay option that we touched yeah. base a lot, lot earlier, as well as it just seems, seems to run the whole and thing. And just confirm with that homestay, if somebody's got a homestay and that's over 90 nights, it is for 365 nights of the year, whether that's in their granny flat or in their main house, but there's somebody permanently living on that grounds they still don't have to apply for VA consent. Correct. So that, all they need to do is just register as a homestay on the council's yeah. website. Main, only two things to be aware of is maximum five short-term guests at a time. Okay, fine. And that you need to register with council. But yeah. It's, it's, homestays are great. And the homestays are a lot less in council's crosshairs, let's say, okay. compared to, we were talking about monitoring enforcement before. Yeah. Just given that there's still a strong residential component, there's still someone living on the property full-time that can respond to noise issues, that kind yeah. of thing. So, And it helps people pay the mortgage. So people, council's more open to it. That's perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Richard. Um, if there's any more updates in legislation, in fact, actually, while we're, before I let you go, is there any um, updates or emerging trends or regulatory changes that are coming into effect? As of right now, the changes that only changes that I'm aware of uh, will be regarding tax changes um, for short-term accommodation properties. It's not something I I'm qualified to give advice about. We'll get an account. In, ter- <laughs> in terms of the planning rules, so the current rules are working under a pretty settled at this point in time. But this is an, it's such a moving topic that the if I was give, having this, if we were having this chat in twelve months' time, I would probably be talking about some different things. Yeah. So it's a very much a moving, but no immediate changes on on the immediate horizon. Perfect. Well, if there is any updates, we'll get you back on again. Right. Thank to you. It. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the episode today. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. And don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter to be in a chance to win the competition that ends on St. Patrick's Day so you can get out there celebrating at a bar restaurant of your choice. Until next time.